Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and here we are at the Clubhouse Studios here in beautiful Rhinebeck, New York. Welcome. And we have a great guest with us today. He is a drummer. He is a conductor. He is an archivist. It's unbelievable how many things that this guy does. We'll get to all of them if we can, but first got to introduce him, Michael Berkowitz. Mike, welcome to the Rick Z Show. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Thank you for coming up even during covid and coming up uh, from newburgh where you live or wait not newburgh bombville bombville beautiful bombville okay yes. it's really it's yeah. really close to newburgh <laughs> yes and i appreciate you coming all the way up here for the My interview pleasure. you know it's funny i've had so many drummers on the show i'm fascinated with drummers for one reason why do they gravitate to the drums as opposed to an instrument like you know piano or guitar or something like that i mean i ask every drummer we've had i mean we've had liberty devito and gary burke and and your buddy tim herman and ronnie zito and all these guys and i always ask them what is it about the drums you're originally from indianapolis but when you were a kid, what was it about the drums? Were you a Blakey guy or a Hal Blaine guy? There's always some camp that drummers seem to belong to. Did either of those guys make an impression on you? Sure, but I'm much older than that. So uh, my family had a large collection of uh, 78s, the big band things. And they bought me a drum set when I was in third or fourth grade. And I used to play with these recordings, but they were the Glenn Miller Orchestra and, yeah. and big bands. So people like Mo Pirtle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a young Buddy Rich uh, with Tommy Dorsey, people of that genre. And then, you know, later I I changed as far as my influences, but that's how it began with those people. Why drums, though? I mean, what, what drew you to them? I mean, it's not an instrument that carries a melody. It's, it's not something that you can sing along with. Why drums? In my case, the uh, kind of the legend is that I used to when I was a baby, hit my head against the headboard at night and just make, you know, like pound against it. And my parents took me to a doctor and the doctor said, well, he's either, uh, you know, got a lot of rhythm or, you know, he's he's unloved or something like that. And they, they said, well, it must be that he's got a lot of, a lot of rhythm because uh, <laughs> we think we've given him everything else he needs. Yeah. So uh, I just always used to do the usual things, man, you know, beat on pots and pans and and all that stuff. And uh, my father and mother went to uh, Chicago on a trip. And uh, I think when I was in third grade, they got a very small beginning Ludwig drum set for me. And I was self-taught. I didn't know how to put the drums together. Even I had to pedal together backwards. Uh, you literally had to take your foot off of it for it to hit the bass drum. But I, I figured it out sooner or later. But uh, I went from there to playing with uh, you know people in my uh, junior high school and, and local little groups and whatnot. You know, it was a a progression. Indianapolis is a great music town. There were a number of fantastic musicians, of course, from there. J.J. Johnson and Freddie Hubbard and Wes Montgomery and folks like that. You know, so I studied with people like Willis Kirk, who played originally uh, with uh, Wes Montgomery's group and and folks like that. So it was easy to uh, learn from some very talented people. And uh, my high school had a great music department, uh, John Von Olin, who was a drummer uh, that many people know with Stan Kenton and Woody Herman was there uh, before me. Drummer named Stan Gage was uh, three years ahead of me. So we had every three years a really kind of good drummer. Uh, and uh, there were a number after me. And Ludwig, um, that was kind of the, the, the kit at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, that Ludwig set was great. Years later, I got a Slingerland set. Uh, One of my favorites. Yeah, and it was uh, I used that all the way from the time, you know, in high school to uh, 
after I moved to LA, I used that for a number of years. Wood I, kit or metal? It was uh, it was a wood set, Silver Sparkle, because mm. I love Joe Morello. <laughs> so Who doesn't? Though, yeah, even though he played Ludwig, I had this lovely Silver Sparkle. Well, I, set. Almost every drummer we've had on the show has mentioned Joe Morello. Great, great player, great uh, man, and great influence. You know, and I still. I think I st- I've stolen as much from him as I have from anybody. And I've stolen from everybody, believe me. So you moved on from there to play with so many pop artists as well as jazz. Are you a jazz drummer or does do you, do you not categorize yourself? Because you could obviously play both. Everything I do, I uh, do with a jazz point of view. So if I'm playing on Broadway, I'm still thinking in terms of that kind of feel. If I'm playing even rock and roll, I'm still thinking about things, although, you know, it's a different kind of concept, a straight A thing as opposed to the swing thing. Can you turn it on, turn it off, or is it a yeah, transition? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm a pretty good tape recorder of styles. Mm-hmm. I can sit down and play like a lot of different people, you know, and it's, it's, uh, that's been one of the things that's been my strong point over the years, is copying other drummers on projects and things like that. Yeah. Well, after you were in high school and you kind of cutting your teeth, you ended up going to school for music at IU. What was that like as a drummer? Were you a performance major? Did you get a degree? How did how did that end up? Yes, I was a performance major at Indiana University, uh, in percussion. I took from uh, a teacher named Richard Johnson, who was a marvelous uh, black percussionist. He uh, taught there. He could not get a job at the time he graduated from Juilliard uh, in any symphony orchestra. And uh, luckily he was teaching in Indiana. And then I also uh, studied with George Gaber, who was the kind of more well-known teacher from Indiana. Um, mm-hmm. And I was in the uh, symphony, the, the Philharmonic there I played in uh, for all the time. I played in the percussion ensemble and I was in David Baker's jazz bands. Uh, I was also in, uh, first year I was there, my freshman year, I was in this jazz band two. I didn't make jazz band one my first year. But uh, in jazz band two, uh, Mike Brecker was in that in that band. Wow. And uh, Randy Sandke and a number of great players. So uh, it was a pretty hot band. Absolutely. I mean, IU happens to be a great percussion school, right? I mean, they're like in the top three in the country. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a fabulous place. Uh, I really wanted to learn uh, an overall kind of concept on all the instruments because for me, I thought I was going to go into the studios and play mallets and play timpani and some snare drum and things like that. That was one of the reasons why I attended. Uh, most people didn't take percussion ensemble every semester, but I did so I could read new music and play a lot of different instruments and get that experience. While I was doing research for this show, I was just stunned with the wide variety of people that you played with. And one act that really caught my attention was Liza Minnelli. Now, you weren't just a drummer for Liza Minnelli. You were also the musical director. That's a whole different skill set, being a musical director, than just being a musician. What were your responsibilities as director? You know, originally when that chair was set up, it was uh, when Liza started uh, performing. In the early 70s, she had a conductor named Jack French and a drummer named uh, Jerry Fisher, who was a good friend. Over the years, you know, they went away and she hired Bill Lavornia. Bill Lavornia was a great drummer. He did a lot of studio work, but Bill also had worked with Judy Garland, Liza's mother. And so Bill had done the Carnegie Hall concert with, with Judy and all of that. And Bill became the uh, music director and the conductor. So that's how that chair kind of became that. And I'd known Bill since I was 18. And over the years, I'd worked with Liza uh, in, in various situations. 
I worked with her in the 70s in L.A. We did a show called Circus of the Stars. It was on CBS. And, I remember that. Yes, and, and uh, she was on that with Charles Aznavour. And then uh, in the 80s, I worked with her. Uh, we did a Sondheim tribute at Carnegie Hall. Hmm. You know, and then I started subbing for Livornia at various times. And he had a falling out, and I came on the gig, and then he came back. And then he had a stroke. He always had a heart issue and uh, had a heart attack, I think. And uh, I got a call. I was watching the Simpsons movie at uh, the local movie house in, uh, in Newburgh. And uh, they said, uh, Bill's had a heart attack. Can you, this was, this was Saturday. And they said, can you pick up the music and go out with us on Tuesday? And they had a tour. So I went into town, got the music, learned it, went out on tour on Tuesday. And uh, we went to Europe uh, after that. And I did that for, you know, three, three and a half years. Wow. Uh, conducting and from the drum set. That's how it was set up so everybody knew how it was done. And it was also our, our band was 13 musicians and it was the same guys all the time. So it wasn't like I had to, you know, work with orchestras and whatnot and teach mm -hmm. them and rehearse. Although we did the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra and I did conduct that orchestra at the Hollywood Bowl from the drum set and uh, got through that. And I'm fairly adept at being able to make that happen. No, so, Liza, we all know what a great singer she is, what a great artist. What would she better. like to work with? She was great. There's, I've never seen anybody uh, more talented in terms of, uh, you know, the singing, the dancing, the energy. You know, I didn't see Judy Garland live. So when I, I talk to people who, you know, saw Judy or, or whatnot, and I always say, well, Liza's the, the best live performer I ever saw. And they always say, well, Judy was, the, you know, but uh, for me, Liza's uh, the top of that. Uh, when she was at the top of her game, there was nobody who could touch her. You know, the, the love of the audience towards Liza is extraordinary. And uh, even when she's having a, a moment where, you know, she's missing a note or something like that, uh, everybody's pulling for her. So it's, it's, it was amazing. I, I had a great time. Are you guys still in touch? Do you, do you guys no, keep in touch? Uh, you know, she's friends with Michael Feinstein, as am mm -hmm. I. And she lives in L.A. now in Los Angeles and a little reclusive. She has, I think, some health issues and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I do send an occasional message via Michael to her, you know, just saying hi. Uh, you know, and, and that, that's fine. Well, I would love to play something that you play on of hers. That would be great. Could we play something? Sure. I think there's something called, yeah, it's called The World Goes Around. It's a, a candor and song. Yeah, this so, is the great Liza Minnelli and the very talented Michael Berkowitz. Check this out. Oh, winter. 
Fantastic. So we've got uh, we've got all kinds of strange subjects to bring up here because while I was doing the research, I just came across all this fascinating stuff. Your brother, Mark Summers. Right. What's his real name, by the way? Mark Berkowitz. Mark Berkowitz. Yeah. Let's go for well, it. I mean, uh, or you could say that I changed my name. The family name was Summers, and we all changed. I changed my name to Mark Mike Berkowitz, so I thought I'd get more work, but uh, you know. Probably not the case, anyhow. Well, for our listeners that don't know, Mark Summers had a very popular TV show on Nickelodeon. It was called Double Dare. Right. It was a, an amazing uh, kind of phenomenon at the time. I was, you know, in my mid-20s at the time, I didn't watch Nickelodeon. I had never seen the show until I started doing some research. And I was impressed at how many people knew what the show was. Well, I'd, I'd mention it to somebody. Oh, yeah. Do, do you know this show, Double Dare? Like, oh, yeah. No, I know that show. So I was an odd man out. I didn't watch a lot of television. Now, he's your younger brother, right? Right, yeah. 
couple years younger than you, right? Two years, nine months. Does he live locally as well? No, he lives out in uh, actually in Santa Barbara. Does he do any television still? Uh, he's kind of retired as of now. I mean, of course, we're all retired with the COVID situation, but uh, yeah. he's basically hanging out at his place and uh, enjoying the uh, the time off. He's he's got a lot of hours on uh, on the air, so uh, it, it's good to take some time, step back. I think for him. Yeah. I'm a really big jazz fan, as I know you are, a great jazz player, but I'm, I'm just nuts about jazz. I want to talk about some of the big band jazz stuff that you've done. Gene Krupa, for example, you worked in the Gene Krupa Orchestra. Was this during Gene Krupa's life? No, no, no. Gene passed 1973. 73, met, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I met Gene uh, when I was in eighth grade in, uh, in the Embers, which was a local nightclub in Indianapolis, where I later actually played drums I was in the house band and uh, for years there were a couple of people who had the kind of Gene Krupa ghost band and uh, one gentleman well, I think they both passed away and for years I tried to get uh, the license uh, through the estate uh, finally uh, you know I was able to do that and I did the band for about five years and uh, it was great we did a lot of uh, a lot of great gigs played a lot of places we did it, you know, in various kind of ways with a Sinatra singer because people tended to like, you know, that kind of combination, mm-hmm. even though Gene and Frank didn't necessarily work together. So that was that was one of the things we did. But we also did, you know, many uh, just Gene Krupa alone dates uh, and, and whatnot. And, you know, the music is great. The, the most um, troubling thing of being the leader of the Gene Krupa band is that there was no music because all of his music was uh, destroyed in a house fire. And so you have to kind of put a book together. And uh, I was able to find arrangements and uh, Quincy Jones had done an album with Gene called Drummer Man in 1956 at Verve. And he was kind enough to give me the scores which I had all the parts copied out. So I had 12 of Quincy's charts for Gene and uh, some older things and a few things were published. So I, I currently have probably around 60 of Gene's uh, charts. Really? And, uh, you know, I don't get a chance to do it anymore because that, that generation is pretty much gone as far as, you know, folks knowing who the Gene Krupa band might have been or, you know, whatnot. Sing 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 always is, is around, of course, but that was Benny Goodman, uh, even though it was Gene playing drums. But yeah. nevertheless, you know, it was a great experience, a lot of fun, and it was, it was marvelous. Uh, you know, getting to know the family and and you know Patty and uh, his son and and get around a little bit of the 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 real DNA there. You know, so it was uh, great. Gene was one of the best. Yeah. And uh, it's funny when I was in eighth grade, I met um, Buddy Rich. Yeah. And that made a huge impression on me at that age. I mean, arguably those two in jazz for drummers, probably at least swing drumming is you know doesn't get better than that. As a band leader, I, it's funny. I, I notice there's a lot of drummers that are band leaders, from Chick Webb all the way to Max Weinberg. What's it like trying to lead a band while you're playing an instrument? And do drummers make better leaders than other instrumentalists? I think drummers make good leaders. You know, I mean, it's we know how to set the tempo and the feel, and you know, all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if a drummer might not have the musical knowledge of a regular instrumentalist in terms of uh, fixing wrong notes or you know things like that that's where it, you know it becomes a drawback at times but uh, once the charts are ironed out and everybody knows the routine 
anybody who's a good drummer is going to, you know, it's you, you lead the band, man. You know, count it off. You know, even in terms of Basie's band, uh, Marshall Royal was giving the cutoffs and, and whatnot. So it's the same thing if I'm in the back row or, you know, the second row or something like that. You know, I'll work out something where the lead alto player will look at me and we'll do the cutoffs or something like that. It's a lot of fun to uh, to have a band that is your own because you get to pick the charts you want to play, and that's the best part for me, you know. Was it intimidating at all? As a drummer, you're filling in the parts that Gene Krupa would have normally been playing. Is that intimidating for a drummer? Well, that's, you know, I love that. That's when I say I, I like to, you know, be like a tape recorder of stuff. I mean, It's a challenge for you. Yeah, it's a challenge. So uh, I would learn, you know, the intros and the things like that, but I never copied him you know stylistically i mean i can't sound exactly like gene and i don't think anybody can because he was a stylist yeah. you know i think what's important is to play in the style you know you don't want to be in the gene group of band and, and play like elvin jones uh <laughs> you know and in the same way when you're playing in the gene group of band or any band of you know a swing era you don't want a tenor player to get up and you know sound like uh, you know archie shep right so you know those are the other things that you know the stylistic Aspects of those things have to remain uh, uh, true to the to the time that you're uh, portraying. And Krupa yeah. was so bombastic. I mean, he was a heavy hitter. Well, he was, but you know, also he played with brushes, man. You know, no. he he could, he could do anything. He could do all it all, you know, all it called for. But uh, I think Louis Belson said you could have thirty drummers on stage, and no matter what was happening, your eye would be right to Gene. There was yeah. just something about his charisma. Also, speaking of big band music. You worked with Nelson Riddle. Now, he died in, you know, somewhere in the mid-'80s, I think, 85, 1985. Maybe. Did you know October. him? Did I know him? Yeah. Yeah, I worked with him for 13 years. It's a long time. <laughs> what was that experience like? It was fantastic. I did the last concert he ever did, actually, among other things. Wow. So we did uh, the last concert we did was about two weeks before Nelson passed away, and it was here at uh, Pier 39 down at South Street Seaport. Wow. And I put an orchestra together for him and played drums. Actually, Ronnie, Ronnie Zito was supposed to play. I was just going to contract, but Ronnie came late to the rehearsal, and I, I sat down and played, and by the time Ronnie showed up, Nelson said, you know, because I had played with Nelson for so many years and knew the music, he said, just sit down and play. Since Ronnie was here, I get to mention his name. There but, is not one arranger that I think is better than Nelson Riddle. Nelson had an immense bag of musical knowledge. You know, he could play and write and in so many different styles. Yeah. And, uh, when I hear the Sinatra stuff that he did sure. and uh, Ella Fitzgerald and things like that, I mean, there was so much melody in his arrangements. Yeah. They didn't ever take away from the singer, of course. They only complimented the singer. But boy, were those arrangements singable. And also the harmonic kind of sense, the ability mm -hmm. that he brought to things. You know, he was a lover of French impressionism and things like that. So there's a lot of that kind of vibe. You know, I'm sorry that I was with him and didn't know, in essence, who he was in a, in a strange way. Uh, the way I got to work with Nelson was I was working with Helen Reddy, and uh, we were on the road, and all of a sudden, Helen was going to be the uh, summer replacement show on NBC for Flip Wilson. And uh, she said to NBC, well, I'm bringing my band. And they said, well, Nelson Riddle's going to be the music director. And... Nelson accepted, you know, us as the band. And he later said he enjoyed working with, you know, young guys because it gave him an insight as to, you know, what was happening. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we all walked into Capitol that 
first time, uh, and there was the Nelson Riddle Orchestra, and then there were four guys in bell bottoms and long hair you know, with <laughs> with Helen. And uh, you know, it was a an interesting time. But uh, Nelson enjoyed working with us. We loved working with Nelson on that show, and I worked with Nelson after that up until uh, 1985, and he, that was 1973. He was a genius, I think. He what, was a, he was a, he was a genius, and he was a uh, a tortured genius. He always wanted to be a composer. He wanted to be Henry Mancini more than he wanted to be Nelson Riddle. The Great Gatsby film came out, and he won the Academy Award for Best Musical Adaptation. And he said to me, now maybe I'll get some work in this town. You know, <laughs> uh, you know he'd done so much uh, so much great great writing, but he said, uh, you know, I'd, I'd trade it all in for one moon river. Wow. So, uh, you know, he... Julie Andrews called him Eeyore, and there was a lot of Eeyore in Nelson. <laughs> a lot of great artists, you know. You never know what you're going to get. You know, music is a double-edged sword in a way, I find. You know, you've got you know, great abilities and talents and a lot of deep feelings, and sometimes there's a dark side, too. Uh, it's just... Well, there was a dark side, you know, and there's many things about Nelson. But, you know, he was hurt. He took... The Sinatra account, Axel Stordahl had been working with Sinatra for years. And when Sinatra first came to Capitol, he wanted Stordahl to do the charts. And uh, Axel did uh, one session, and nothing happened with that, those recordings, basically. And so Nelson came in, you know, there's a story about it with Billy May and Nelson, whatever. Anyhow, Nelson started working for him. April 30th, 1953 was uh, the first... Uh, dates that he did with him, including I've Got the World on a String and, uh, you know, on that chart and that that particular session. And then, you know, he did a number of, you know, classic albums. But then over time, uh, Sinatra started to use, you know, Gordon Jenkins and, and Don Costa and Quincy other Jones. people. And Quincy and, and stuff like that. And Nelson said he was hurt by that and he thought they were doing such great work but he shouldn't have been surprised because he had replaced Axel Stordahl but it, it was it was also a, a painful time and I think he uh, never felt fully comfortable after that you know because mm-hmm. he wasn't the guy you know you mentioned Billy May another great arranger fantastic I mean I think of some of those great arrangements from Benny Goodman I'd love arrangers Billy Strayhorn and uh, sure I, I mean there's so many great ones but for my money Nelson is number one Nelson's incredible and you know like I said I was too young to know what to ask him as far as questions and I spent a lot of time one-on-one with him flying across country to gigs and things like that and and basically, we were just schmoozing. But uh, had I known then what I know now, boy, would I have peppered him with questions. Oh, yeah. He probably would have said, shut the, shut up. And just, you know. We can swear on the show, uh, you know, by the way. Uh, um, <laughs> I want to play something uh, big band oriented that you play on. How about the Gene Krupa Orchestra? Yeah, this is Lover, which is... Uh, Gene's version of Lover, and uh, it's not the waltz version that you might know from uh, Richard Rogers, but uh, it's a very up-tempo thing, and uh, I think you'll dig it. Gene Krupa Orchestra, Michael Berkowitz on drums. Check it out.
Don't forget to come back next week. There's so much more to come and you don't want to miss it.